So, essentially, the uh, message today is just really a frank family discussion. Um, I've sort of, sort of done a dry run of this, but for the most part, this is the first time I've done this, and I don't really even have a PowerPoint for you to look at. I'm just sort of having an off-the-cuff discussion, and it's a very important, in my opinion, a very important pastoral matter. Um, I'm really blessed to be able to, again, travel all over the world. I sort of joked yesterday I was at Elim uh, Fellowship, which is a um, startup messianic congregation that's um, being planted here in Jacksonville, and um, they meet in a little church, so there's a church there that lets them gather, and they've got this huge building, but, you know, it's sort of typical if you're a freewheeling Protestant, independent USA, you know, we're just going to send the kids over into the giant warehouse room with Christian graffiti all over the wall, um, you know, and it's just kind of this building, and so I said, you know, one week I'll be in, you know, a messianic congregation, the next week I'm preaching under a basketball net, um, the next week it's some, you know, a mega church with smoke machines and, you know, all of the lights. And if I'm talking about the end times, I'm like, turn on the red lights. And, uh, you know, the next week I'm in an Arab church in North uh, Iraq. And, you know, then I'm in a little Baptist church and we've got the hymnals. And, you know, so I'm blessed to speak in such a wide array of different cultures. You know, American conservative Protestant uh, Christianity has so many different cultures. And I appreciate I really do. I appreciate the differences of these different cultures. Now, personally, in terms of theology, I identify with independent, Protestant, charismatic, um, you know, call it what you will. You know, I'm a mere Christian, but I do believe in the gifts of the Spirit, that they're still ongoing in this sort of thing. You could call it Pentecostal, charismatic, but probably my guess is most of us sort of run in these circles. Are there any Baptists or just, just you don't want to raise your hand, you're like, well... <laughs> Um, you know, but my thing is, as long as someone is conservative and they affirm that there are less than a dozen genders, no, just kidding, I can probably identify, no, I'm just kidding, you know, as long as someone is conservative, I'll go and I let, you know, but it's, it, the, the, the difficulty I have is, you know, whatever you want to call it, progressive Christians. I just, I can't do that, but I don't care if you worship from a hymnal. I mean, I even have a fondness, I shouldn't say this because people will say that I'm, a heretic or something. I even sort of love when I'm stressed just putting on some Russian Orthodox, you know, let God arise, let his, you know. Um, I, have a, I have an affinity for a lot of that sort of Middle Eastern, ancient, you know, Orthodox stuff. I don't necessarily agree with their theology and so forth, but I just love the variety within the body. But there's an important discussion that has to be had, in my opinion, within the this segment of Christianity, particularly independent, charismatic Christianity, and it pertains to the issue of eschatology. Okay, how many people don't know what eschatology is? Quite a few. Eschatology is simply the theology or the study of the end times, or in a, in a broader sense, what we would say, ultimate things. So when I say end times, I don't just mean the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, the tribulation, not just all the stuff that comes before the return of Jesus, but really the future. What happens after we die? You know, what happens, what is the resurrection? You know, what heaven, you know all, all of the future things. That's eschatology in a broad sense. It includes the mark of the beast and the events that precede the return of Jesus, all of these things. Um, and by the way, it's not to be confused with scatology which is the study of animal droppings. That's different. This is eschatology, not scatology. Just, we need to be clear down here in North, North Florida. Um, but see, you go, what's he talking about? See, what I just did is I did a trick. You'll always remember what eschatology is. These are little <laughs> speaker's tricks. Um, so in a sense, this is a word, and pastor's sort of just given me freedom to share this and trusting that I won't be declaring anything heretical. But really, this is a larger word for, again, the entire charismatic movement. I think it's a very important discussion that needs to be had now. So I'm going to start out with a very, very brief class. Okay, and I'm going to use some theological words, but don't get scared. As soon as we lay these out, we're going to move on past this. Okay, so first of all, 
The first word is called premillennialism. Premillennium, premillennialism. And what this is, is it's a framework for, for viewing redemptive history. God's unfolding promise plan. And so premillennialism views the unfolding of the story this way. Okay, we're in a time right now called this age. This age is divided by a day, an event, a series of events called the day of the Lord. Okay, so we have this age and then there is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the return of Jesus. And then after the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus, you have something called the age to come. This age, the age to come. The age to come begins with a thousand year, whether literally or not. That's really not important if it's precisely a thousand years or if it's just a long time. The Bible says a thousand years. But it's a thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth from Jerusalem. And all of the initial promises that were made in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that much of the church is barely familiar with, the Old Covenants, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, all of the promises, covenant, just just think promise, all of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to the children of Israel, all of those things will be fulfilled during the millennium. Okay, and then at the end of the millennium, um, it transitions into what's called the eternal state. So, but there is this transitionary period called the millennium. So this is pre-millennialism. What does it mean? It means Jesus returns previous to the millennium. Okay, so it's, you know, a big word, but it's a fairly simple, I mean, relatively simple concept. But it's a, it's a way to understand the story. Where are we in the story? Where is the story going? You know, here's where we are. We are in this age. We are looking forward to the return of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom on the earth. And then ultimately after that, what's called the eternal state, which is actually fairly vague. The distinctions between the millennium and the eternal state are a little bit blurry, admittedly. But that's a framework for understanding that perspective, premillennialism. Now, there's another um, theological term, a different framework called Amillennialism. Our British friends say amillennialism. A, the prefix a, instead of pre, it means no. There is no millennium. And, and really what amillennialism believes is that all of these references to the millennium, that they are actually to be understood spiritually or allegorically or symbolically, and that we are in the millennium now, that it's not a literal millennium, it's a spiritual millennium. We are in the millennium now. That's amillennialism, okay? It's sort of a, um, you know, all of these very concrete promises and, and visions and descriptions of this millennial period are realized now. And that we as the church are, are essentially establishing the kingdom of God on the earth now in a mystical spiritual way. And then one final word is post-millennialism. That means after the millennium. And this is actually a variation. It's, it's a little bit of a twist on amillennialism. Post-millennialism basically believes that, yes, we're sort of spiritually in the millennium now, but rather than saying that it, there is no millennium, they actually do believe there is this sort of golden Christian age but we ourselves, as the body of Christ, will establish it on the earth. And then we establish the kingdom. And after a thousand years, then Jesus returns. And then we enter into the eternal state. That we essentially conquer the world with the gospel and then hand it over to Jesus on a silver platter. And so that perspective is that the church began with persecution, but then we are moving on to victory. And that we ultimately will completely Christianize the entire world. And so it's sometimes called a victorious eschatology. But the, the millennium is not necessarily literal, a thousand years. But it's, so it's just sort of a victorious version of amillennialism. Okay, is that, do you understand those three? Now, these are the three frameworks, the three primary worldviews 
that pretty much anyone within our world is going to adhere to one of these. Now, a lot of us don't know. They go, I don't really know where I stand. Now, here's the problem, is within our world, we are sometimes weak at teaching, and we have a lot of friends, we have ministries, and we have pastors and friends, and these guys are my dear friends, and they go to a church that is very post-millennial. And I love this pastor, but he's a good guy. I disagree with his eschatology. But over here, you know, we're premillennial. And the problem in our world is no one wants to say anything because they don't want to make it sound like they're criticizing their friends. And so the problem with that is that the average churchgoer will go to a church and one day they'll hear some teacher that they like, and the teacher will preach a very premillennial message. And they'll be like, hey, man, that was awesome. And the next week, and sometimes I'll see it in the same churches. You just different speakers come in. And the next week, the speaker comes in, and he's totally post-millennial. But they never actually say, I am a premillennialist, I'm a post-millennialist. They're just saying things that emanate from their worldview. And again, the people go, I really love that message. But it seems, I'm trying to have a, I'm a hard time reconciling kind of what this guy was saying with what this, because it seems like they clash, but we like them both. And, and it leaves a lot of people a little bit confused and it's almost like we're sort of in this world where there's a little bit of a lack of clarity and even tension to a degree between some of these uh, perspectives. Now, why is all of this important? We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus. We are ambassadors of Jesus. And we have a message for the world. What's it called? The gospel, the good news. Okay, so this is, we are people of the good news. We are here and we have a message, and we are telling people out there, hey guys, you should repent of your sins. You should quit doing drugs, you should quit living immorally, and you should come and be part of this community. And they go, why? And you go, well, we've got this good news, here's why. So this is what we are offering to the world instead of the temporal pleasures of this age. And I think it's important that we understand what the gospel is. This is our message. And yet the truth is, what we believe about the future very much determines our gospel. So, you know, if you know, someone comes in, they go, what's the gospel? And I go, well, the good news is we're going to conquer the world for Jesus. And he's going to empower us to do it. And someday we're going to hand it over to him on a silver platter. And you can be part of this project. And they go... Thanks, but no thanks. I'm tired enough. You know, I don't have enough energy to conquer the world. And you're like, but the the Holy Spirit will empower us to do it. And they go, still, it sounds tiring. (laughs) You know, whatever. That's a different message than saying saying the day is coming, and it's coming soon, when a God-man is coming back from heaven, and he's going to crush wickedness. He is going to conquer this world. He is going to destroy the unrighteous leaders of the earth. He is going to put a decisive end to the industry of human trafficking. He's going to put an end to abortion in the, uh, the abortion industry. He's going to put an end to these things. And he is going to deliver the oppressed. He's going to bring relief to the poor and the needy and the, de- the depressed. And he is coming back to bring us deliverance. And he's going to bring deliverance to Israel in, in the light of the hatred of the nations. And then the majority of the people out there, in my opinion, they go... Well, you've just described me. I'm depressed, I'm oppressed, and I'm really looking forward to this divine deliverer to come back and give me relief. See, that's actually a very different message. And so what we believe about eschatology, what we believe about the future, is important. It is important as a people that we have a sense of commonality and unity, and we need to discuss these things, okay? Because it does. It determines our message. It determines what we are living for. Why did I quit drugs? What was I exchanging it for? You know, when I was 19. This is not just a few weeks ago. Just for clarity. What else? What we believe about the future affects the way we live now. And one of the most important ways that it has affected the way Christians live now is in the way that we relate to... Jesus' brothers and sisters, the Jewish people. Okay, so early on in the church, there was this idea that emerged, and essentially what I referenced with, I call it amillennialism. And so essentially this idea emerged that we, 
as the church, are the new and the true Israel. Now, a lot of people, we've heard a lot of this language. And it's amazing, by the way, what you can get away with in a church as long as you just saturate what you're talking about with Bible Jesus language. As long as you just say, amen, hallelujah, mention Jesus, people will accept almost anything. It's, it's amazing. And so when you hear stuff about we are the new and true Israel, it's like we've heard it so many times. We go, yeah, yeah, we are. Well, let's just try to put this in context. What's your last name? Reeker. Okay. So I don't know if you understand this, if you're aware of this. This may be offensive, but I am the new Reeker. You are the old Reeker. In fact, you and your family are no longer the Reekers. And the reason that you are no longer the Reekers is because you guys were unfaithful too many times. And so God unfortunately divorced you. I, on the other hand, by grace, have been brought in. And all of your stuff is mine. And you're like, who cares? I don't have anything. No, I don't know. But you can have it. Just take the kids. No. (laughs) That's an incredibly offensive thing. That's an incredibly offensive thing. But yet that's what we, largely, much of the church has been saying to the Jewish people. But we go, well, but they can come in. and You know, you can join us if you want. You can join the Reekers if you want. If you want to become part of us. But you have to repent of being an old Reeker. You know, so on. it's just sort of like this big convoluted thing. But here is the logic. Here's the very natural logic that flows out of this. So you had... This idea that developed and said, we are the new and true Israel. All of your promises now belong to us. As opposed to, we, the dumb pagans, get to participate and receive and inherit all of the promises that were made to Rikas. I get to come in and join you by grace, because that's actually the biblical, that's actually what the Bible teaches. Um, We've said, no, we replace you. Here's the logic that flowed out of that. These Christian theologians in Europe throughout the medieval period, they said, well, wait a minute. And, and the, the decisive event in history was 70 A.D., was that when God destroyed, allowed the Romans to destroy Jerusalem, and it was a temporal judgment. It was a temporary judgment on Israel. But God's chastisements of Israel, and they've happened many times throughout history, and God's chastisements of us are always unto restoration. Why do we discipline our children? To teach them so they will be faithful. They will emerge ultimately as faithful. His chastisements of his people are always unto restoration. Even the events of 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. That was unto Israel's ultimate restoration. It was a temporary, partial judgment, a chastisement, a loving, fatherly chastisement. Okay, but what happens is theologians looked at that and they go, that is proof that God has forever rejected Israel. That was the decisive event. That's what Christian theologians said. And they said it was God's will that Israel as a people are dissolved. They are no longer the Rikers, Rikers. And and he has purposefully dispersed them among the nations, among the earth. They are to be dissolved. Okay, and we are the new and true Israel. And so then, this is the very natural, logical flow of thought. They said, well, since God is punishing them for their rebellion, their rejection of Jesus and their unbelief, since he has dispersed them among the nations, we as God's representatives should partner with God. And so this became known as the Jewish question. How should we treat the Jews in our midst? And some theologians said we should be kind to them. Maybe they'll come to their senses and repent and come over and join us. And others said, no, we should make them feel the pain of the chastisement. And that sounds crazy, but it's a very logical. Once you say, once you say God doesn't like this person, it's very natural that you're going to start naturally not liking that person. Once you say that it's God's will to mistreat this person, it's very natural to start mistreating. So our eschatology very much has determined the way that we treat the Jewish people. And ultimately, this led, by the way, to where Martin Luther came along and he answered the question, how should we treat the Jewish people in his book, The Jews and Their Lies? He said this, burn down their synagogues, take away their prayer books, and drive them out of the city like screaming mad dogs. Take their children and forcibly baptize them. I mean, this was, he goes down this list, and that was his final answer. He goes, this is what we should do. Maybe they will repent. He said, literally, take the ashes of their synagogues and cover it with dirt so there's nothing left. Take away their prayer books. Take away their things. Drive them from one city to the next. And then Hitler came along 
And now Hitler was not a Christian, but he was really building upon uh, millennia of this development of what was a, a Christian discussion. And he said, okay, you guys have been wrestling with this Jewish question. He said, I'm going to offer the final solution. When Hitler called the final solution, it was with reference to these, this idea that had been paved by Christian theologians. Most Christians aren't really aware of this. And this horrible, horrible thing that we, you know, so in many ways ideologically supported, this, this whole thing is rooted in bad eschatology, a wrong idea concerning the future that God is not done with Israel. He does have a restoration of Israel. All of the promises made to Israel are still good, that there is a temporary and a partial hardening, but that time, as Paul says in Romans 11, will be lifted, and all Israel will be saved. Okay, that's a very different vision of the future. These are issues that we should have clarity on. We should have unity, because it affects the way we treat the Jewish people. It affects the message that we have for the world. It affects what we're laying down our lives for. Eschatology is not just weird, morbid trivia about arguing about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and building bunkers and living in fear and all of this. Eschatology has very real, practical, basic, everyday Christian application. It is not just the fringe, weird stuff to be avoided. It has pressing relevance right now. So there's an overview. Now, with that said, I'm going to do a super quick overview of church history. Okay, the earliest believers after the apostles, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Commodius, Victorinus, these guys were premillennialists. So the guys that were the closest to the apostles, you know, um, Polycarp allegedly, you know, in, in history, I say allegedly, it was to be a disciple of the apostle John. Okay, and then Irenaeus was to have sort of uh, had relations having been taught by Polycarp. So there's some continuity. These guys were premillennialists. Okay, so the earliest of the believers were premillennialists. Well, then you get to the 4th and 5th century, the late 4th, early 5th century, late 300s, early 400s, and, and, and things started changing, and you have this guy, August, Augustine, or Augustine, and he was really the first one that, in a very systematically way, articulated amillennialism. And he was this looming figure in church history, and really after... Uh, Augustine, the church, for the most part, embraced amillennialism. And amillennialism dominated the church after the 5th century, pretty much right up for the next 1,000 years, up until the Reformation. Okay, so we're Protestants. We believe that along the way, the church stumbled and got off track in different ways, and the Reformation is about getting back to the apostolic message that the apostles believed. Okay, so it's important to kind of see the trending of church history. Well, then the reformers start actually opening up the Bible and reading the Bible and trying to take the Bible back, and there's a development over the next few hundred years as, as the Reformation was sort of expanding within the Christian world. And you get up until the late 1700s, and much of the reformers, by the way, were still amillennial, some were post-millennial, but in the late 1700s and then in the 1800s, you have this movement that sprung up in uh, Ireland called the Plymouth Brethren Movement. And there was, there was an emerging return back to the early eschatology. There was a return to premillennialism. And so the Plymouth Brethren Movement, you had guys like B.W. Newton, S.P. Tregellis. There's a whole bunch of them, some really amazing, lost, forgotten authors and teachers they were simply looking at the words of the prophets, looking at the Old Testament, looking at the New Testament, reading these things, not just through this hyper-spiritualized allegorical symbol, and just going, wait, these guys are talking about a restored, literal, future kingdom of Israel, a thousand, you know, all of these things, and there was a, a reclaiming of premillennialism, okay? And then that movement spread over here to the United States, and, you know, within 100 years, 150 years, well over half of the global church now have returned to premillennialism. But in the early days of the Plymouth Brethren movement, you had, again, B.W. Newton, S.B. Tregellis, then you had another guy named John Nelson Darby, and um, he came from England as well. And then you had, um, he, was influ he influenced a guy, came over here named C.S. Schofield, Cyrus, I don't know what his middle name, Cyrus Schofield. He wrote the Schofield Reference Bible. And so really, in terms of 
I'll just say like messaging and influence, it was the Darbys and the Schofields kind of won out. Now, what's the difference between the two? The Darby and Schofield, they believed all those things, but they embraced a view of the rapture called the pre-tribulational rapture. So what they believed is that we get raptured seven years before Jesus returns. And so that, that whole sort of system became known as pre-tribulational dispensationalism. That's the last big word I'm going to use. And they basically came to dominate much of the seminaries, much of the publishing world. And so when we talk about the end times, we talk about premillennialism, most people in the church immediately think of pre-tribulational dispensationalism. You know, if, we, if any of you grew up, you know, in the church in the 60s and 70s and 80s, that's primarily what was what you were hearing. Hal Lindsey, you know, a lot of these, um, the, the most, a, a, as well as the seminaries. And so that sort of, it was the dominant view. Well, out of that period, and by the way, how many people in the room came to faith during the Jesus movement? There's always going to be a handful in any room. How, how many of you during that period read Hal Lindsey's book, Late Great Planet Earth? There's always going to be a few. This was an incredibly influential. The Lord used this book, as I joked at First Fridays, to scare the hell out of a lot of people, literally. And um, because he was writing, and basically this is the thing, is as an apologetic, you know, we try to convince the unbelievers that this book is true. We go, well, let's talk about creationism, and we'll talk about philosophy and, and uh, archaeology and different things. But one of the primary ways, when you look at the apostolic model, how did the apostles convince unbelievers? They, they expounded upon biblical prophecy. They go, this what you're seeing here in the earth? This is to fulfill the words, and they pointed back to the prophets. I would argue that biblical prophecy is the most powerful and biblical apologetic. It's the most powerful tool in our arsenal to convince unbelievers that this book is true, and the call to repent is valid, and his lordship and authority over our life is legitimate. But we've basically lost that. Why? Because out of this whole period, to where most of us probably grew up, unless you were a very traditional Christian in a mainstream, you know, like Lutheran or church or something like that, you probably have grown up in this largely influenced by a dispensation, pre-tribulational dispensational world. Okay, so now I'm bringing it up to where we are because I want us to understand the landscape of trends and ideas and influences in our world now. How have we gotten to where we are now? Well, so throughout the 60s and 70s, what happened, again, you know, going back, is because Israel had become a nation, 48, right? And then took Jerusalem in 67. And then the church was really writing about this and saying, guys, this is exactly what the prophets said. And people were reading the late great planet Earth. They were reading these prophecy books. They were looking at the Bible and they were saying, events are unfolding in the earth which confirm the words of the prophets. So it was world events were proving the Bible. And this was a huge impetus, and the Holy Spirit was moving. It was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and a movement of the Holy Spirit. But it's those two things. It was not just one or the other. It was both. But there were also, so there, there was good things that were happening back then, but there were also some problems with that whole period. What are some of the problems with premillennialism? Well, first of all, and I'm not, to be clear here, this, is not, uh, this message is not to bash or attack pre-tribulationalism. I don't adhere to the pre-tribulational rapture. I hold to what's called pre-wrath or post-trib. I believe that we are raptured when Jesus returns and that he returns and then the wrath of God is poured out on unbelievers. But look, that, this is like one of the dumbest issues in the world to fight about because we all get raptured at the same time. It's wisdom for all of life to be prepared for the worst. And so if you believe in pre-trib, fine. But do be prepared just in case. Win-win. It's, it's wisdom for all of life, right? And it's the one thing that I really hope I'm wrong about. Because I want, I, I'm not so much like for me, but it's just I want my kids to get raptured because they're wussies. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. I'm just kidding. Actually, my son, he's eight. He's, he already can take me. Um, <clears throat> but here's the thing is when you believe that we're going to be raptured before the bad stuff, and when you believe that Jesus is coming back to conquer the world, it, it was very easy for us to get into a mindset that critics have rightly called abandonment eschatology, an abandonment mindset. So 
the abandonment eschatology is best captured by a phrase that was first spoken, as far as I've researched, by our dear friend J. Vernon McGee. Does everybody know J. Vernon McGee? The Bible says, in, you know, just this great old radio preacher. If you don't know that he's died, you think he's still alive because he's still on the radio going through the Bible, and he's just an awesome, you know, precious brother. But he coined this term, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? This is a good phrase which embodies abandonment eschatology. And so the, the underlining kind of um, idea is that, like, the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket anyway. So who cares if we pollute the lake a little bit? We're saving money for the gospel. <laughs> you know, so it was kind of like the idea. I'm, it's not necessarily just pollution, but it's kind of, you know, even to the point where people would be like, ah, I could get my tooth filled, but Jesus is probably going to come back soon anyway, so why bother? You know, I'm sure he's going to come back in the next five years. Twenty years later, they're like, that was so stupid, you know. And, um, and there's the kind of like, why spend time trying to, trying to influence culture? Why try to get involved in politics and improve the neighborhood? Gee, it's all going to burn anyway. You know, and that's abandonment eschatology. Now, I understand how believing that Jesus is going to return and renew all things can sort of lead in that direction. There's an interesting little anecdote within um, Judaism, and they say, you know, so if Messiah was going to return tomorrow, what would you do? And they go, I'd plant a tree. Well, that's the opposite of abandonment in eschatology because that communicates that what we do in this age has direct correlation to the age to come. Because the return of Jesus is not the destruction of this world it's, he comes back to renew the world. And it's like things go on. And so you don't want to destroy the earth because we're accountable. We're stewards of the earth. And so, you know, abandonment eschatology is a problem. It is a problem that needs to be fundamentally identified and rejected. I want to be someone who preaches the gospel, say, Jesus is coming back. A man has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. But let's also plant some trees. Let's also invest in the world. I want my kids to invest long term, but to live with an urgency that he's coming back. And there's a tension there that is okay. It's not one or the other. We can be people that are involved in society and culture as long as we realize that our primary mandate is to preach repentance in light of the coming day of the Lord. Does that make sense? It's not one or the other. It's an issue of what is our primary mandate. Our primary mandate is the gospel. Our primary mandate is not to conquer the world. And by the way, I don't think, I don't think our mandate is to conquer the world at all. I think our mandate is to be salt and light, to be positive influences wherever we go, in any sphere of society, and Jesus is coming back to conquer the world. But we are to be faithful stewards in the meantime. Amen? Okay, what else? Um, premillennialism can lead to an extreme pessimism. It says that everyone's just going to fall away, the great falling away. It's just going to get worse, worse, worse. It can be very fear-oriented. If you're not pre-trib, if you're post-trib, it can lead to saying, I just need to store up more beans, more bullets in my bunker and in order to protect my food from my neighbors because they're going to get hungry. <laughs> right? And that's, the Lord doesn't like the bunker mentality. He doesn't like the abandonment. Is that, I know who's got the bullets. Um, just kidding. <laughs> just joking. Now, it's another thing if you're storing up stuff because you believe that the Lord's given you insight and you want to feed the neighbors. That's another thing. That's a gospel-centered sort of preparedness. But that self-preservation is not biblical. It's not, we're not primarily here to save ourselves. We're here to lay down our lives for the proclamation of the gospel. But in that, there's also, there could be a rejection of revivalism, which is like, no, there's not going to be any revival. Everyone's just going to fall away. Probably you, probably you. It's just going to get worse. I'm probably going to be the only one left. And it's just going to want a hell in a handbasket. You know, it's like this extreme negativity. And so you're not contending for revival. Okay, so that's a problem. You're not going to fall away. Neither will you. I probably will. No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm just, I just... Don't, don't speak that, Joel. No, don't speak that over yourself. I'm just kidding. The Lord knows jokes. What else? 
there was a lot of goofiness. There was a lot of craziness. We could talk about that forever. I go to the prophecy conferences, you know, it's like what happened is within Christian eschatology, it, it got sort of merged and melded with all of this secular conspiracy. So all of the Illuminati, New World Order stuff got mixed in there. In more recent years now, there's been this other weird hybrid UFO stuff that's come in. I've got a friend of mine's mother, somehow I got put on her mailing list or email list, and she literally believes, just like men in black, is it men in black? She believes the world is filled with reptilian alien shapeshifters and, and these other aliens, and she sends out these emails. We need to intercede, we need to pray, because the reptilians have accessed laser technology and they're going to destroy the world. We need to fast and pray. I'm going, are you serious? Like, I go to some of these conferences and it's like, I'm like, this isn't even Christian. It's a Bible prophecy conference, and there's nothing biblical. It's just lunacy. Some of it's crazy. I told this one gal I was working, doing a job for her, was in construction for 20 years, and she goes, well, what do you do? And I was, didn't, she didn't know about sort of my other life. And I was like, well, I, I write a lot about the end times. She goes, oh, I love that stuff. She goes, I love science fiction, end times. I was like... This is not science fiction. This is what we've made it. So there's goofiness, there's craziness, there's fear-based, there's a pessimism, a rejection of revivalism, there's an abandonment mentality. A bunk. Those are all things that we want to avoid. Amen? Okay. So a lot of people saw this during the 80s and 90s. And then what happens? The very natural thing that people do is we overreact. Pendulism was over here. And people saw some of the excesses, and so what do we do? We swing the pendulum to the complete opposite side. We throw out the baby with the bathwater. We throw out the good with the bad. And so today, within our world, you have some people within our movement that are clearly proclaiming premillennial message, and you have many, many others within our world that have fully embraced post-millennialism. Okay, this victorious eschatology. So just... A few sort of very influential books that articulate this. There's a book called Victorious Eschatology by Harold Eberly. Um, Systematic Theology for the New Apostolic Reformation. You've heard this term, the New Apostolic Reformation. Again, probably there's people in this room that have relationships. Maybe if you go to churches that are part of the NAR network or something, there may be, maybe not. But, you know, I could name all sorts of names, ministers, probably many that we listen to. It is, its eschatology is post-millennial. It's not pre-millennial. It's post-millennial. The Advancing Kingdom by Jonathan Welton. How Heaven Invades Earth by Chris Vallotton and Bill Johnson. How many people love Bethel? How many people are, are, you know, feed from the... Now, let me say this. Bill Johnson, highly, highly influential within the charismatic world, is such a gracious-mouthed, such a fatherly, sensitive guy. And there's tremendous good coming out of Bethel. But I want to be very clear, in light of our discussion, they are essentially proclaiming a post-millennial message. Their eschatology, their entire framework is very post-millennial. Now, Bill, again, I, just, I really want to honor him and make it clear. This is not a criticism of anybody. What, what folks like Bill Johnson and so many other pastors like them is they're pastors. They have a father's heart. And they look at all the craziness of everything that I just talked about. And they go, I don't want my people involved in abandonment mentality, bunker mentality, UFOlogy, crazy conspiracy theories. I want to proclaim revivalism. And so he's, and, and, and I got to be careful how I say this, he's not really a theologian. He's a father. Okay, I'm, I'm more than anything a theologian, a teacher. And so he looked at that, and the very natural pastoral thing, it's very natural, is to say, I'm going to just avoid that stuff entirely, and I'm going to go in this other direction in a way that encourages my people to go for it. And I love that about Bethel, and I think that's what most people within the charismatic world that appreciate Bethel also love about Bethel. They love the revivalism spirit. They love the encouragement to get out on the streets and start going for it. Hey, I'm in the grocery store. I've got a word for you. I feel like the Lord is impressing upon my heart to share this. Can I pray for you right here? That's good. 
That's fantastic. We need more of that. Amen? Okay, so I want to be very clear. This is, this is the kind of stuff that no one talks about. I'm not a pastor, so I can do it. And I didn't tell Jeff that I was going to say this exactly. So he might correct me after I leave, but that's okay. <laughs> Get the heck out of here. What are some of the problems with postmillennialism? Okay, so the positives are, are, again, it encourages a faith-filled, revival spirit, a positive spirit. It encourages long-term thinking, which oftentimes premillennialism can lack. The problem is that when we believe that our job is to conquer the world for Jesus, it is inevitable that we will end up falling prey to what I call the kingdom now hamster wheel burnout syndrome. What does that mean? Is that you get on this hamster wheel, you hear the message, it's positive. It's like going to a, you know, one of these um, multi-level marketing rallies or something. And you, you're like, I'm on board, you know, because it, there's so much positivity. And you get on the hamster wheel, you're like, I'm going to conquer the world for Jesus. Huh? You know, you do the charismatic two-step. Or, well, I, I don't even think I can do it anymore. There's the charismatic two-step, and then there's the Pentecostal jig. So, but we're more of the charismatic two-step. And, um, and you get on the kingdom of Abraham's where you're like, hallelujah, conquering. You go, hey, brother, what are you doing? So but we, my kids just got sent home with the biology rats for Christmas break. So we've been babysitting the rats. So all night long, they're, they're, they're nocturnal, stupid things. The kids are like, I hate the rats. And you're like, well, we're not leaving them in the kitchen, you know, because then the dog will get them on the counter. But so they, they get on, you know, the hamster wheel or in, all night. Hey, Joel, what are you doing? Conquering the world for Jesus. Hallelujah. I don't care how much energy you have. And I don't have any, by the way. You're going to fall off that thing. And you're going to fall off and you're going to go, man, something's wrong with me. Okay, here we go. Okay. Hallelujah. Fill me with your vigor. You know, you know, he will renew your wings as eagles. Get back on. Conquering the world for Jesus. How's it going? Well, pretty good. We're really influencing culture. We're all the way down to like 52 genders. How's that conquering the world going for you? I'm confident that we're going to get it down to like in the 40s here if we keep praying. Eventually, you're going to fall off and you're going to get burnt out. Now, that's, I'm sort of being silly. But guys, we're losing the culture war. We've got a prayer movement that's exploding across the world, but we're still not winning the culture war. And people go, well, these things are cyclical. They, I shouldn't do the hamster wheel thing. The rest of the message, I'm going to be like, <sighs> we're losing the culture war. And also, there's this, is that if the kingdom is now, then there's a, there's a very important theological problem. If the kingdom is now, then according to the book of Revelation, that means Satan is chained right now. Because it says during the millennium, Satan would be chained in the abyss for a thousand years. And so what the amillennialists or the postmillennialists will say, literally, is they go, he is chained. And what that means is that the gospel is spreading throughout the nations. You go, it says that he will not be able to deceive the nations for a thousand years. He is chained up. The Bible also says Satan roams about the earth like a roaring lion seeking how he may devour. They go, well, he's got a really long chain. Either he's chained or he's not chained. My experience, personally, is that he's not chained up right now. The other problem, quite frankly, is that it's a very depressing message. You go, no, it's a positive message. Not for me, because I'm poor. Because I wrestle. I wrestle with sadness. I won't say depression. Maybe sometimes I do, if I'm to be honest with you. How many people wrestle with sadness? Let's be honest. Most of us are miserable part of the time. I know that doesn't, that's not like Joel's book. Most of us are miserable. It's true. The gospel is good news for the poor. It's not good news. Like, it's like, hey, I applied these principles and I am victorious in all I do. I'm like a tree planted beside the stream and you can be like me if you apply these principles too. Hallelujah. And we're like, whoa, yeah. You go home and you're like, that didn't work for more than 10 minutes. I believe that if our message that we're proclaiming is not really good news for the broken, the needy, the poor, the afflicted, the forgotten, the marginalized, 
then it's not the true gospel. So I was teaching this. I was in Scotland. And um, it was so funny. This Afterwards, this sweet little white-haired Scottish lady comes up and she goes, Joel, you're so right. Because if the millennium is now, then the millennium really sucks. And I was like, she gets it. She gets it. That's exactly my point. Something is coming that is fantastic. And if this is it, then quite frankly, it stinks. I have something that I'm looking forward to. It's good news. Right? What else? When we have this kingdom now mentality, the kingdom is primarily now, then the the emphasis becomes transforming the world. Our mandate is not primarily preaching repentance because the day of the Lord is coming. A man has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. It primarily becomes transforming the world. It primarily becomes trying to appropriate in some mystical, spiritual, or even very literal way this invisible kingdom reality. So in the charismatic world, it involves kind of just doing some charismatic intercession and and spiritual warfare and rebuking the heavenlies, and I'm going to transform my you know, neighborhood. And I'm not, talk, I'm not saying we shouldn't, you know, I'm not totally opposed to spiritual warfare. But the primary way that the Bible gives us to transform the neighborhood is to go out and proclaim the gospel, to preach the good news, to invite everyone on the highways and the byways to come in and join and be, be, be part of the wedding feast. And then what happened with me is the stupid drug addict, drug dealer, rep- Here's the message. It convicts my heart. I welcome the Holy Spirit. It transforms me. And now, <laughs> I'm a preacher. I was a drug <laughs> Now I'm a preacher. I've changed. Right? So if you want to transform... If you want to... Cha- um, I've still got a long ways to go. But if you want to change your neighborhood, go out and faithfully proclaim the gospel. And one heart at a time, from the inside out, you'll completely transform the neighborhood. And then, and then we will naturally vote in humble, righteous, servant leaders. But when our, we believe that our mandate is to conquer the world, all energy becomes elections. Everything is all about the elections. And ultimately, it's focused on law, government, and military. Because those are the external ways that we impose. And that's what the Catholic Church did. They tried to impose the gospel by the sword to subdue the pagans. And I'm not saying I believe that law, government, military has its place, but it's not primarily to establish the gospel and to subdue the pagans and to convert them to Christianity. That's not, that's not how this thing works. It works one heart at a time from the inside out. And I'm not saying that we're not called to transform culture. We're called to influence culture. But it's not, we're not to go out there and just magically release the kingdom to dance down the street with flags, charismatic flags with glitter on them, and that's going to transform the neighborhood. That's not how it works. We preach the gospel. When you look at the words of the apostles, they go, God has commanded us to proclaim that a man has been appointed, and he has fixed a day where we will, he will judge the living and the dead. Repent, therefore, in order that times of renewal and refreshing could come. Okay, so it's just a different emphasis We used to say that we have a gospel without any power. People would go out and preach the gospel, but there's no power. It's almost like we've gotten to the point now where we have power without the gospel. We go out and we pray for the sick, and then we go, they go, whoa, something just happened. And you go, that was Jesus, man. He loves you. Later on, where's the proclamation of repentance? We've lost that because there's this whole theology that says all judgment was poured out on Jesus and there's no more judgment. That's fundamentally unbiblical fundamentally unbiblical. So I need to end this. (laughs) Listen, guys, I want to be clear. I want to draw out the precious. I want to draw out the good. As I survey some of the mountains of influence within our world, I want to be someone who, like the folks at Bethel, is a revivalist. I want to believe God for big things. I want to go out and engage. I want to have a very... Uh, faith-filled perspective. I want to go for it. I want to live like Bethel, that, that positive thing. But by the same token, I want to preach like Isaiah. I want to preach like the prophets. I want to have a gospel-centered focus that preaches good news to the Jews, that says your Messiah is coming, your kingdom is coming, 
all of your promises are yes and amen, and it is Yeshua, it's Jesus. And I want to have good news for the poor. I want to be a gospel-centered, let's complete the Great Commission. Let's proclaim the good news to the poor of the earth. Let's not build bunkers and hide out. Let's not abandon our long-term thinking. Let's preach the gospel and let's plant some trees. Amen? Amen. Amen. You want to come up, Jeff? Amen. Fantastic. Aren't you thankful for clear teaching? I feel like we could sit and listen uh, to a bunch more sessions uh, on this. And so, uh, Joel, if you're available to hang around for a few more days, we'll just, you know, get everybody back in here. Um, again, if you're interested in, in connecting with what uh, Joel's teaching, you can find him at that website, joelstrumpet.org. Um, follow him there. And there's tons more material. Um, I'm going to pray. Brian's going to lead us. And Joel, if you want to, you want to go to the back. Get those resources back there. If you want to connect with Joel, when I say Amen, go. Or he's going to be in the back by his table. If you want to grab a book, if you want to connect with him back there, you can. If you want prayer, uh, maybe it's connected to something you heard today that you know stirred your heart. Maybe it, maybe you, you know, maybe it's just the the the. You know, a lot of people will say it's kind of a old Christian joke to say, well, I'm a, I'm pan millennial. You know, I don't know how it's going to end. I just think it'll all pan out in the end, you know, and it's just not a, it's just not a reasonable place for us to be as, as believers. And if you feel like there's conviction in your heart about, you know, I need to, I need to, I need to press into this because our eschatology does matter to our missiology, the way we do church the way we go about serving the Lord and maybe you want to pray about that or maybe you have something else going on in your life that you want prayer for whatever it may be uh, you can come if you want you'll get prayer um, if you want uh, if you're okay otherwise you know let's just worship together and then we'll, we'll close and so stand with me if you're able